Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Appreciate you guys checking out this episode. I wanted to talk today about some of the stuff I'm uh, updating on the Billy Newman Photo website, which is uh, kind of fun. Got a couple uh, new posts up there for some of the trips I've been doing. I also wanted to talk about some of the stuff I was doing over on the Oregon coast, doing some winter rock hounding stuff I've been kind of talking about, and then jumping over into the forest and uh, kind of checking out some stuff too, which has been cool. Right now I'm parked over at a uh, a cool, I don't know what, it's like a a remote control airplane park that's set up uh, kind of north of town. And I went over there to, to watch some people fly these airplanes around. But it's pretty cool. They've got these remote control airplanes. One looks like a, like a, a it's like a DC-10. Another one looks kind of like a, just like a little jet airliner. They're kind of goofy, little funny aircrafts and stuff. And uh, they have them set up on these little tables over here. Then there's this short runway system, and then they, they get it going. Well, I think they get it going in their hand, and then they kind of chuck it off out of their hand as I've been watching them. And then they run it around in a couple little figure eight patterns here, get them flying for a little bit. They're pretty good and pretty controlled at it. Um, I've seen some people out here before sometimes just like really like ramming it where they just kind of like punch the thing like up into the sky. And it's cool because with these remote control things, you don't really have to risk life to do cool aerial stunts and stuff. And you can really pin those little motors a lot harder than you can with like a, 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 an aircraft that a person is in. Uh, and they're so light and stuff that you can really just kind of ram them out, stall them up in the air, kind of uh, stall them up in the air, bring them back down, start them up again, and then have them take off, you know, before they <laughs> crash and burn into the ground and stuff. But I've seen them kind of doing that up over here above the tree line that's up on the, the far side of this big lawn that I'm at. And I've been over in the park that's over on that side here, and I'm kind of fly, fly their airplanes around and stuff. Then I come up to the tree line, watch them, and I go, wait, what's over there? How's this set up? And yeah, on this other side of the park, there's a remote control airplane park going. So, uh, so yeah, I was out here today watching this guy. He had like uh, his three remote control airplanes around, giving them a, a, I don't know, a good winter send off up into the air. And uh, yeah, he ran them around a couple times and then, uh, and then yeah, they bring them down into kind of a slow glide onto this long hundred foot runway or so. And then, yeah, it just kind of skips across the ground there. I don't even know if they have landing gear, it seems like, but, uh, but yeah, then lands his plane Picks it up with uh, one hand, sets it up on his uh, little table mount, and uh, reviews reviews his flight. But yeah, it seems kind of cool flying around little remote control planes. I haven't really gotten into that. I did like a little, you know the drone stuff is fun. The there's I had plenty of air flights. The air air stuff is pretty cool. But uh, but man, yeah, it seems uh, I don't know. I'd be too nervous to like just putting some three hundred dollar mini airplane into the ground, or you know you see like these cool little like uh, remote helicopters. That just seemed like a bunch of mechanics and metal and stuff, but I think, man, I'd lose control of that, or I'd lose my orientation and control of that so fast. And I'm sure, you, I mean, obviously you can train for it. People do it all the time as a, a little bit of recreation, but man, it'd be difficult for me to pull off. But it's kind of fun hanging out here at this park. There's uh, there's like three 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 old timers, you know, they're they're van or I don't know, they're not that old, they're not that much older than me really, but uh, they got their vans, they got their their couple remote airplanes, and they're taking turns flying over this big lawn and stuff out here. So. Good, good times, but um, stuff I've been doing. Beginning, uh, beginning of the month, I posted the um, the wallpaper for February. This one's kind of a, a cool, sort of a serene lake shot that I took um, took in the winter time, and uh, I really like this picture. It was up in the Cascades, uh, up like uh, it was, it was the lamb. No, it wasn't the Willamette side. It was the it was the other side, kind of going into Sisters. I think somewhere up there. But, uh, but yeah, I was up there in the wintertime, and so you can kind of see it's like this real bright sort of uh, shimmer of light coming off 
the top of it as you kind of come down it sort of pulls into this gradient where you got you start to see the rocks into the water until it sort of becomes clear rocks just under the water but you, you kind of have this mix of, uh, of of the water the rocks and then the the way that the light kind of plays with the the water in the winter time there so i thought it was kind of a cool and sort of easy serene shot and i thought i'd uh, try and get this one posted up onto the blog so that uh, it could be used as part of a wallpaper so happy february there you go happy groundhog's day that was a good time um <laughs> and uh then i had um kind of been finishing up some stuff on the Oregon coast a little while back. That's sort of what I was talking about. And it's easy to get over the Oregon coast. So I've been kind of trying to jump over there more often than not. But uh, I uh, had gone over kind of specifically to do a little bit of like metal detecting stuff, which has been fun. You kind of get over to the main park area, you jump out, you got your metal detector, you do some sweeps sort of over those uh, kind of like commonly walked path areas. And that's sort of the, the the more active locations there as people walk there, there's sort of stuff that like ends up, ends up getting lost there, getting dropped there and stuff. Really, there's nothing cool. Like maybe you'll find a penny or a quarter, or like some messy metal bit is about all you can find like a chunk of a lighter that got left in the sand or something is about <laughs> the best that I found. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I was out there also to, to kind of try and check out some of these winter gravel beds or rock beds that are sort of lifted up a little bit as the, the, the winter storms are sort of washing around a bit. And I've been trying to find some agate that's dropped up in the river area there. And then any other kind of cool stones that might have been uh, dredged up out of the, the creek or river system that sort of flows in there. I kind of try and find like creek inlets that kind of drop into the into the ocean there. And I think the idea geologically is that uh, as the creek, as the water starts to erode the land, it'll kind of pull that valley together that makes up the, the the creek draw and then uh, all of that wash that kind of comes out to the ocean is going to be bits of rocks and minerals and metals that are kind of churned up through this dredging of the creek process over all this time and so all that space that's occupied that kind of pulls out new rocks every year and i guess that's one of the ways that um that you get agates sort of washed up down onto the beach is that they kind of um they kind of get eroded down to the beach by kind of washing through on this creek system here uh, so that's kind of where I'm trying to go out to is these creek beds that sort of flow the water out. And they also kind of wash away a lot of the silt and stuff. So you see those stones that have been kind of pulled up. I think that's that's what it's saying is, you know, there's ground on top of it. If you had water, wash it away. You'd see the stuff underneath it. Now you see the stuff underneath it. And sometimes it's cool agates or cool jasper rocks or, uh, I don't know, cool, cool whatever else I'm finding out there. It's a lot of basalt, some jade, some other cool stuff. But it's kind of fun to to find. Uh, so I've been kind of trying to do some little rock counting, picking stuff. Some of it's there. It's also been kind of so-so on some of these, or at least on this one. Uh, I found like a, you know, you, you pick up you pick up rocks, you pick up cool stuff, you kick stuff, you you, you know, some stuff's weird and you don't pick it up. <laughs> you know, you used to be alive or something. You're like, what is this? Is this a bone? Ew. Um, <laughs> and other weird stuff like that. You know, it's weird stuff you find on the beach. But it's cool going out there in the wintertime. It's pretty wet, pretty rainy. It's not that cold. You know, it's not as cold as like the, the high mountain stuff or the heavy snow stuff was. But but wet, if you're not ready for it, that can be kind of a pain. So I'm trying to trying to deal with the wetness with uh, some rain layers and the wind and the water stuff. It's kind of rough on the camera gear. So I kind of try and leave that in when it's real wet. But I'm trying to, to wait for the break. So I'm kind of trying to be out, do the stuff, shoot the stuff, be in the environment, feel it, look for rocks detect metal whatever other nonsense i'm up to and then if there's a good break in the weather the, good, the light's good and i've already kind of walked through the area i can kind of know what's valuable or what to go after and get or i'm kind of seeing the way that it's changing and uh, i can kind of appreciate it for that 
go get the camera, go shoot the things that uh, that I need to out of the project and stuff. So I'm kind of trying to move it that way, but uh, also a lot of the time I just I'm carrying the camera with me and it's uh, it's putting up with the rain. Um, but some of it is rough. Some of it's just like real wet, gray, flat. I'm on the beach. It's wet. It's gray, flat. There's nothing going on. So that I'm really trying to not take the camera for. But it's still pretty fun. I kind of jamming around. So, I don't know, it's been pretty good. I've uh, been sleeping kind of cold on some of the nights that I've been out. It's like uh, wintertime stuff. So even over on the coast, it's like I'm trying to either double bag my 15-degree sleeping bag. And I'm also kind of looking into like zero or really now what I'm looking into is not a zero-degree sleeping bag, but I want like a, a negative 15-degree. That's one tip I was looking up is like if uh, I think like optimally – if money's no object and you're going camping all the time and you can pick whatever you want, you want to get four sleeping bags. So you have kind of a warmer weather, a colder weather, a cold weather, and a very cold weather sleeping bag. Really optim like for real people, uh, you're probably only going to have one sleeping bag. And if you're doing well or if, if you're kind of taking it serious, you're going to have two sleeping bags. And so that's kind of what I'm at or where I need is uh, – uh, I have like my warm weather summer sleeping bag, but what I probably need now, I mean, you know, that's the winter time and it's cold is I need like a winter cold weather sleeping bag. And I'm hoping to get something before I was hoping to get something rated to zero and just kind of replace the 15 degree bag overall is just kind of uh, zero sort of moderately use that. But what I was kind of learning after reading a bit was like, well, the 15 degree bag is, you know, 15 and zero zero, but zero is not that much different. It's like, uh, it's, it's better, but it's not going to be like a, a it's not enough steps up from where you're at to really change the effect that you're going to have. Uh, I kind of understand what they're saying, you know? So yeah, get some, you know, get, skip, skip a step, go to the negative 15, or if you're really into it, go to the negative 30, but that's going to be probably too warm for most people in temperate climates and stuff. So, um, so I'm trying to think of yeah, hitting the negative 15 degrees zone. And I guess what they say for a lot of that stuff is, you know, that, that, that number that they list is where, is where you'll survive at. Uh, it is not where you're going to be comfortable at. I think a lot of the times they now kind of try and rate or describe both of those numbers, but really regularly it's it's a lot it's it's a much warmer temperature that will be what you tolerate in that sleeping bag. It's not going to be zero degrees or fifteen degrees. I think a lot of the time, even when it's like forty five, well, I don't know what it would be right now. Like uh, definitely, if it's around thirty degrees. Like if it's getting close to freezing, thirty five, thirty four, thirty two, thirty one, twenty eight. Anywhere in there, I am freezing in my 15-degree bag. So it really is quite cold, even with layers of clothes on, you know, that I wear outside in the daytime. And then I keep those on, jump in the bag as like an extra level of insulation on that. It can still be cold at night. I mean, I remember that just being cold in that bag in some spots up in the mountains in the wintertime. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, I can definitely see like, man, if I had uh, like a negative 15-degree bag for probably a lot of this uh, easier winter stuff, that would help out a lot. Um, or, yeah, it would definitely be a warmer amount of insulation than what I'm into right now. Most of the stuff is working pretty good, like some of the gear stuff I've been uh, picking up on. A lot of the time I'm making coffee with an AeroPress. I've kind of set aside the French press, set aside the camping mocha pot for a lot of it. And, uh, yeah, the AeroPress – what did I say? Mocha pot? French press. AeroPress. Yeah, AeroPress is the right one. That one's working pretty good. It's that one made out of uh, like Aerobee plastic. Remember like the Frisbee, the plastic Frisbee you make in the 90s, the Aerobee? Um, 
I, I don't know. I guess they're like a Lexan manufacturer. It doesn't really have anything to do with Frisbees, but they make plastic stuff. And one plastic stuff thing you can make is a little coffee maker doohickey that's made out of uh, <laughs> two pieces of plastic with a filter on it and uh, and a little little rubbery piston deal you squish into it. So it makes coffee great. It works really well for that. It's uh, you know it's like that heat resistant or whatever sensitive plastic. So. You can mess around or you can get a high. Remember like the BPA stuff and all the nasty water bottles? I remember getting like these water bottles. You put a you put water in it and then like 10 minutes later, it would just leach a bunch of disgusting plastic flavor out of the bottle and into your water. And then you drink it too. Oh man, 1993. That was gross. Now, none of that. You know, you get the Lexan bottles that uh, that are BPA free. They don't, they don't have any of that kind of, I don't know, whatever, that runoff or <laughs> whatever's going on. That's uh, you're getting some petroleum oil or plastic, I don't know, poly, I don't know, poly, whatever, you know, up in your, up in your water. But uh, yeah, that was terrible. I hated the BPA stuff and the flavor and whatever that you get from old uh, plastic stuff. So thank God that's gone. But, uh, but now with like an algae bottle, it's really easy. You can get a hot, you can get a cold, you can drink out of it pretty regularly. They kind of say, you know, be careful with uh, like aluminums or be careful with plastics. Uh, I guess, I don't know, I guess iron or, you know, stainless steel is fine or whatever, but. I'm sure it is, or titanium's fine, or whatever for like the camping forks and spoons and stuff you nibble on. Um, what, you know, like copper. Copper's one you gotta stay away from, right? But there's still copper food stuff, or copper bottom stuff. I think for like um, absorbing heat or whatever. I don't know. It seems like it's all over. See, I remember having a copper pan that was like it was sure coppery on the inside of it. So <laughs> who knows how they figured it out, but. Um, but yeah, a lot of that stuff's working pretty good. The jet boil's working good for, uh, for getting stuff hot. Also kind of getting that for, oh yeah, just like anything you need to get hot really fast. It's great to get the water like up and running really hot. And then I have like another little, uh, like burner stove thing on the side for if I need to, to warm up a pan. But really a lot of the time I'm kind of trying to avoid that, um, sort of messy mix up stuff, uh, way of going about it. It's not really like, um, really super remote stuff that I've been doing. So I kind of, you know, just sort of, uh, put up with a, a very nice sandwich or, you know, some kind of cold cut meal. That's not, uh, not a hot made piece, uh, of whatever. So it's going good, but I'm having a good time. Uh, yeah. Kind of traveling around and, uh, doing some camping out stuff and kind of making my way about, but, um, I've been kind of still putting up some black and white photos. You guys have probably been seeing those on Instagram. I think I've been putting out a couple a day, uh, as it goes for black and white images from, a, uh, a collection of photos that I was putting together. And then I'm also trying to do that screen capture stuff of uh, kind of going over the edits and stuff that I was making, showing that color version, and showing the conversion over to black and white, and uh, kind of talking about the process of sort of adjusting and, and tuning some of that stuff. So you can check that out. That's on YouTube. That's been pretty fun. And then I think uh, some of them are cross-posted over to, fa- to, to Facebook or Instagram. But, uh, but Instagram, Instagram um, TV, the IGTV stuff has some, some links and some posts to some of the 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 content stuff I've been throwing up there. I've also had now a couple of these uh, these captioned clips go up too. I've been trying to throw up some some captioned clips of the podcast uh, to some different spots, and so I've been trying to like caption these uh, clips of video. Well, how do I say it? Like uh, I've been taking the audio from the podcast. I made like this graphic layout for it, and then I've been trying to put captions in at the bottom of that so that it's like a, a captioned clip of audio from the podcast and uh, and then yeah i've had that set up clipped it and then uh, put it up into a couple spots on instagram and on facebook and uh, it's working well it's kind of cool having some clips of it posted up there some of it's used some of it's seen yeah it's a uh, kind of cool but uh, having that stuff sort of set up and scheduled out has been working pretty good for me so um up 
I guess coming up in February, I've got a, a good bit of stuff going up onto the blog as travel stuff goes. It's pretty busy. It's February though, you know, so it's like pretty wintry and it's been kind of like that a lot this year or you know i'm kind of feeling uh, the the wintry kind of insideness and that's really why i've been trying to go out and go talk about going out and camping and or you know kind of traveling and being out and um trying to get out and about and stuff but um but yeah the 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 ocean coast stuff has been really cool and then kind of through through january it was cool sort of bouncing back and forth from the coast to sort of some of those interior forest hills and camps and creeks and stuff so you kind of go down 101 and then you find this little town or creek or road or something that kind of cuts back up um, to the east of the ocean there, you know, from the west. And you go inland a little bit up into the hills. And then you're out into some really cool and pretty remote forest creeks. And uh, it looks like they're, you know, great spots to go fishing, great spots to kind of pull over and do like a car camp kind of thing. Uh, a lot of those are uh, kind of break out into public land pretty fast as you sort of go up in the hills and the foothills and stuff, of the, the places, the side of it. And it's cool, too, even if it's not uh, like a great, um, great camping area. Some of the areas are pretty populated around some of those waterways. It's, you know, like the water's popular by the coast. So you, you want to be by the river. You want to be by the creeks and stuff. But a lot of those parks are available and open and stuff. So it's really cool. You can kind of camp wherever, get back up in your car, travel down a ways, go up this river, you know, go up, go up into this little spot. You can find fishing spots. Or you can find little hiking spots or hanging out spots or camping spots a lot of time, too. But um, but yeah, it's been kind of easy to do some of that or some of the day trip stuff. There's a few wildlife refuges around, which are pretty cool, like on the coast. So you can see some of these birds that kind of come in and uh, migrate over to these areas along the coastline, which is pretty fun to, to see some of those, um, those big, you know, like ocean birds. They're, they're a different type than the geese that we get kind of in the inland valley areas. And now we're finally starting to see some of the eagles show up Been spotting the hawks up in the trees for now weeks, you know. They're up all the time, but uh, but they're kind of fun to spot. The eagles, though, when they move in, they're they're like really visible. The big, bold, black body and the bright white uh, cap of the head, and uh, seeing a lot of those, and then also seeing a bunch of the the juvenile. I don't know if they're jacks or like you know it's whatever that it's like a juvenile eagle. They're kind of big and you know, they're pretty bulky in size, but they have sort of a a brown textured feather color. Like they're not they're not black. They're not like full. Uh, like that bright black with white head mature eagle that we see. It sort of looks like a big brown eagle or, you know, like a golden eagle or something. It's sort of what it's sometimes kind of, I think, misinterpreted as. I've I've done that before too, where I think, hey, is that like a golden eagle or what? what? You know, no, it's a juvenile bald eagle that uh, that hasn't grown its white head feathers yet, I guess. I don't know if I'm, <laughs> I don't know if that's even true. I just heard that, I guess, but um uh, but that's kind of what I've been understanding. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of cool spotting these birds out here uh, in in Oregon in the Willamette Valley. It's They used to be like none of them. And now they're all over the place this time of year. It's like a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've talked about it last year and stuff, too. Or you see like six of them swarming around up in this tree, kind of like bouncing each other out of these little spots on the limb where they're perched. And, you know, they kind of try and fight for dominance over who had the cool perch spot. And uh, who got to look at over the field? But uh, but yeah, you see like a bunch of them up in the field and stuff. It's pretty cool. So it's kind of nice uh, watching them return and watching them kind of do that cycle and stuff through the area here. It's been kind of fun. Been kind of getting some pictures of them. A lot of the time, I just let the birds sort of fly around. There, they're real distant too. You got to get real close, and you have to have like a incredible telephoto lens to get up on that stuff. That's where like a lot of avian. Um, what was it like? Uh, the Audubon Society. 
what was his? I guess the guy's name was Audubon. He was like the guy who like first did a bunch of the drawings of birds as they kind of travel across the West. So they did. I think it was that like what it was, right? Like the the Audub- the guy. I don't know the bird guy. Is it an ornithologist? I don't know what it is. But the bird guy came across you know in the eighteen hundreds and um, they drew drew a bunch of birds, put that in a book, and then it was like a representation of the birds of America. I think they tried to do that again with like the large mammals of America. And that ended up being more difficult or something. But the Birds of America thing was cool because, you know, they were, like, scaled, right, to the page size. So you'd have these really big birds that were, you know, scaled up to the size of big birds, and they were kind of um, intricately drawn so that a lot of their uh, their species detail was sort of represented in the photo or into the drawing images that were represented of them. And I think it was, like, one of the first, like, sort of more comprehensive um, naming systems that they did over in the New World as they got here and started, you know, doing more uh, more complete biological science or nomenclature i don't know what it was it's kind of like that zone where it's like was that like it's it's biology you know they're kind of like studying the stuff so that the the nomenclatures that we use today for like the naming conventions of how these animals are categorized and uh, a lot of that was still pretty accurate you know it's kind of adapted and molded a little bit since then but not in like a real fundamental way it's still like a binomial or trinomial uh, nomenclature you know you have like the I don't know, like Homo sapien or something, you know, for us, but it's like this, these two names and stuff, but it's, a, it's like this, uh, cate- this way of categorizing different organisms that, um, that you're trying to classify. And I guess that's some of the stuff that they did with uh, a lot of this like bird stuff. But what I was talking about is they were trying to draw these birds. They had to go across the country, find these birds. I think a lot of the time they shot the bird, went over, picked the bird up, and then tried to draw it again, you know, as it was, as it was alive. Um, and they, but they preserve the species, and then they would kind of uh, review it for science, right? So uh, I guess like a lot of the like if you go to the Smithsonian, like a bunch of the bird uh, pieces that they have in storage at the Smithsonian were shot by Teddy Roosevelt, you know. Cool, <laughs> but uh, it's shot, yeah, shot by Teddy Roosevelt for uh, for study in science as he was trying to review the different, uh, I don't know, bits of bird science and stuff. And it was already pretty well fleshed out even by the 1850s there. They had like all of the little bits that you'd be surprised to learn about now. They had all that stuff figured out, you know, hundreds of years ago. So it's kind of a trip when you think, oh, well, I guess they've been kind of figuring out pretty complex things for now hundreds of years. It's not uh, it's not just brand new. It's not just yesterday that they uh, were trying to figure out how to accurately and uh, pretty specifically categorize and name things. But, um, but yeah, it was kind of cool. <coughs> Excuse me learning about the stuff that they were doing with the birds. Um, but for doing bird photography, you need like a big scope. And I guess that's kind of what it turned into later on, right? It's like, you know, a lot of the bird watchers and stuff, they have like big binoculars, they have uh, big bird watching scopes, which are pretty cool. It's like normally the scopes, you know, like the Simmons scopes or the, like the vortex scopes or the, the loophole scopes that, um, uh, that like hunters would normally use as, you know, those monocular ones. You put it on a tripod system, it's real stable. And you can get in there like a telescope with one eye and you can scout in, zoom right up into uh, into a bird or an animal that you're watching. So a lot of time, like hunters, they'll use those to scope out whatever kind of animal or game is cre- creeping and crawling around up on the other side of a mountain, you know, across from you. Uh, but uh, but yeah, for a lot of the bird watching stuff, the bird watchers really just run like a few thousand feet with it and that's even still kind of hard to see because you know they're pretty small animals so if you really want to get up close and then make uh, sort of more specific observations about their their physical features and their nature you know like where locations of certain colors are certain color feathers or certain uh, spots and i think that's sort of a fun of the uh the the bird watching uh hobby 
that's out there of uh, what people are doing. You know, like they're trying to identify, trying to look for, trying to um, observe and appreciate the uh, the differentiations that they see in the species that they spot. So they're kind of trying to look at the different plumage or they're trying to look at the different spots or colorings and uh, sort of like see like, oh, that, that must be like a more mature one like I was talking about, right? Like they observe the, the bird, the certain feature of it is present or not present. That kind of represents it's a mature or a juvenile bird of that species. So there's all these kind of like little bits of things that they find out. And I guess like clear optics are sort of one of the things that they use to do that. Now, getting back to the photo stuff of it, for me to take photos of it, I had to have such a, and a, such a tight zoom lens to really get those images. A lot of the people that are working on, um, working on types of bird photos, they really work between like 400 millimeters and 600 millimeters. And sometimes they'll even put a doubler on that so that they have like that, uh, that 2X magnification, that 2X doubler that they can, they can clip on to a 400 millimeter lens. And now they've got an 800 millimeter lens. And I think it, it cuts down a bunch of the light that you get to collect. So let's say if you're at F4, you could put on this 2X converter. Now you're all of a sudden at F8 when you shoot, or at least like the brightness of what you're capturing is at F8. So it makes it a lot slower but it does add like a lot of magnification and zoom to it. But I think it cuts down on like the amount of light you'd need to capture to represent an 800 millimeter image. Man, that is zoomed in. But sometimes I guess they need it for some of this wildlife stuff that they're, they're putting together. I mean, that's really where you see a lot of these, um, these big zoom lens going to, you know, if you look at like a, like a dedicated Nikon 600 millimeter lens, that thing looks like a telescope that needs like its own tripod and, whole mechanism to keep supported i don't even think it's something you can just attach to the front of the camera and then you know go about your business with the 300 millimeter you can pretty well do that that fixed 300 228 lens for a canon or for a nikon they're big they're, they look like a tank on the front of that camera but it can handle it pretty well and it works pretty well and you can move around and, and take pictures with it and for a lot of wildlife stuff that sort of seems to be what people use a lot is a 300 millimeter lens like that with a 2x converter so it can hit up to that um to that 600 level zone when i was working with that nikon camera that uh, that was like an 80 to 400 and that worked great for a lot of wildlife stuff pretty cool for that but to, to get close on those specimens of a bird that's maybe six inches high you know for a deer or an elk if you're looking out 100 yards and you zoom in it's it's going to be like eight and a half feet that you're kind of viewing in that uh, in that circle there when you're talking about a bird it's maybe 12 inches or, you know, a tops 24 inches if you're talking about a giant bird, you know. Uh, and so really even like their physical masses, they kind of take up the space of the photograph. It's sort of difficult to do that. One of the old adages, it's sort of a, a goof for uh, beginning photographers is the name of the game is fill the frame. It's sort of this idea where if you're taking a picture of something, have that something be most of the space that occupies the screen. In French film stuff, it's called mise-en-scene. It's like what's on screen. And I think that's like a, a big part of the attitude or the, the feeling that you get, the emotional feeling that you get from what's sort of what the impression is of what's visualized on the screen is, is what's on screen. And it's sort of like this French way of like if you want to – if you want a film noir, this like uh, it means a dark film, right? So like it's a detective story kind of kind of movie, but the viewing of it, the, the the way that it is visualized on screen is dark, and that is sort of representative of its dark storyline. And so it's sort of this thing of what's on screen is supposed to represent what's in the words. It's sort of a connection of it, or what the meaning of it is is represented on screen. Same thing in this. What's what is in the photo is what should be the photo, what's on screen. 
and uh, and that's sort of the same thing where you're taking like a lot of like wildlife photos. I've taken a bunch of these too, where you take something, you're real far away from it because you can't get that close to wildlife, and then you have a picture of a bird or a coyote or something, and it takes maybe the amount of, you know, like a the space, the visual space of a fingernail or something, you know, at, at arm's length in a photo. And so it just isn't really that much visual mass to observe unless it's sort of constructed in a way where you can kind of have some context of the landscape or the 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 environment and the goal of the animal or so that's really cool and you can kind of describe that it's like if it was like coming at you at sort of a, a diagonal angle and you had sort of a landscape and a target of it in frame two you can kind of have like oh here's the subject here's the action and then here's like the destination all kind of represented in the photograph that's sort of cool when you can do that and you can get back and have some space to sort of represent that um, but a lot of time if you're kind of getting something close uh, of just like an individual specimen it's real difficult to do that if uh if you don't have that kind of deep zoom that, uh, that you're going for. Now I've sold all the big uh, zoom lenses that I have. Um, like I had that like uh, that Nikon 80 to 400 I was talking about. That got sold when I switched over to Canon st- or Sony stuff way back. And then that all got sold and I switched over to Canon stuff uh, now way back. So, um, so yeah, I haven't had like a, a telephoto like that in my possession for a long time. And one of the reasons for that is I noticed when I had that 400 millimeter uh, Nikon one, I'd uh, leave it in the bag for like four months at a time, there would just be like these only these kind of specific instances where oh, that's what I need. I need a, I need a real big zoom lens to take a picture with. Now, interesting photos, cool photos. I love the compression and the way that it sort of reconfigures the thing that I'm visualizing as different from the kind of 50 millimeter world of compression that I see things in now. So it was really cool to like, oh, I want that image or I want that thing out there and I want those trees up there and I can kind of compress those things together by using the zoom effect. That was really cool. And the, there's really beautiful things you can do with the compression to kind of make landscape images sort of stand up on themselves, you know, um, instead of getting those real flat horizon lines that you get in some, some wide angle photographs where it's uh, it's just kind of half the photo is land, then a real flat line, then half the photo is sky. Look through my photos, you'll see a million of them. Um, with compression, a lot of the times you can sort of kind of, uh, I don't know, you can add more, more, elevation to the photo so if there's like distant mountains that would normally with a wide angle just get flattened out to a real thin little line on the horizon you can kind of zoom into those mountains and they'll they'll kind of get back their visual mass that we sort of see them with as we observe them across the landscape our eyes you know we kind of we kind of pinpoint in with our fovea we kind of see just that that bit that spot that we're really looking at but there's so much of the the 180 degree angle around us that we see but we don't really capture in the in the viewpoint that we're taking and that's sort of difficult in photography to relate because we, we want the wide angleness but we also want that presence of the thing that we're really focused in on and so it's kind of difficult to figure out how to do that for a long time in photography a lot of the time though it really means you just have to edit out what's what's wide and flat and you have to zoom right into that one bit that is the subject that is the part of the fovea that is what you're looking at. And, um, and that, it works pretty well. It's cool. And when you're doing that in landscape with a, a zoom lens, you can really make those flat landscapes kind of stand up. Those smaller features and stuff, they can kind of be more compressed to take up more visual mass on the screen, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. Like those rim rocks in eastern Oregon or mountains or trees or whatever it might be, you can kind of get those to, boom, pop up in the picture and be, uh, be sort of filling the frame as it is. But, um, but now, as it is, like if I want to zoom... Uh, you know, zoomed in picture. If I'm working on like some landscape stuff, I'm even kind of planning that for March or maybe in April. I'm not sure yet, but if I'm going back out to Eastern Oregon and I'm going to do some more kind of landscape based stuff uh, or more wildlife based stuff, which would be kind of cool to try too. What I'm going to do 
is rent that land. That sort of helped me out a few times in the past, like when I've gone in to do paid jobs, like a wedding or something, I'll kind of hold off on buying that wedding lens that I really only use those, those times that I'm at work doing a wedding. And I've been trying to kind of shift that price off to the package of the wedding. So like if I, if I take on a wedding or something, then, well, I'll put in this much money to get the right lens for it. So I have this really great buttery lens that I can throw onto the camera. I can shoot these photos with. I can get that pumped, that upgrade or that, that, uh, that lens uh, feature or quality that I'm looking for. It doesn't fix everything, but it also does fix things that don't work with the lens I have. And that's kind of the nice thing about it. So you can go in and, oh, I need that feature. Oh, let, me, let me grab the specific thing. Let me use it for this task and I can amortize that. I can make my money back on it by, uh, by doing that. With the landscape photo stuff, you know, it's just something I'm interested in, but I like investing in it. And it's great though, when you are doing something kind of more specific for a period of time to throw in a little bit of money and rent the lens out. So like I was saying, I leave that 400, you know, that zoom lens in the case for a couple months at a time. It just doesn't pop out. It doesn't make its way into use for you know months at a time when I'm just taking kind of personal photos around the house or whatever it is. Uh, so I ended up kind of getting rid of it for that and not replacing it sort of because of that same reason, even though it's pretty cool and I like a lot of the images from it and I'd use it to do zoom stuff a lot or, you know, zoom in and get that compression a lot. It just was something I figured, well, if I'm going to do it on those times that I do it, I should really rent it. It'll probably cost 80 bucks or a hundred bucks to get a seven day rental. It's sort of around the price of most stuff. It's a real new item. It's more than that. If it's uh, kind of a beat up item, it's less than that. If it's uh, not in use that much or it's not that expensive a thing, it's a lot less than that. Um, so there's a lot of bits that you can kind of pick up that you normally don't have that would be kind of cool photo features to have on a, a specific trip or something. That's kind of what I'm trying to think of is, oh, okay, well, like for this seven day period, I'm going to be out. I'm going to be traveling through these landscape areas and I don't have a zoom lens. I want to do some wildlife stuff. I want to try and capture some birds. I want to zoom in up, up on, um, on like, you know, whatever other kind of stuff I can find. And uh, to do that, I'm going to get this 300 millimeter Canon 2A or whatever it is. And that would probably be kind of expensive, but I could grab that. And it would be available to me in just a couple of days. And then I can do all the photos and shooting that I want with it for the period of time that I have it. And most of those rental deals have all worked out real well for me. I take real good care of the lenses and the equipment while I have it. And uh, it doesn't really get banged up or rained out too much. So I've never really had a problem with, uh, with any of like the rental contracts and stuff. Uh, but I kind of try and keep it pretty light and pretty simple. And it's gone, it's gone well so far in the past. I've rented cameras, camera bodies, and lenses and bits. And it's all been pretty fun. And... I don't know, worked out pretty well. So it's an option for you if you want to get uh, some lenses that you don't have access to yet. It's best when someone else pays for it, but it's fine too if you need to uh, to invest uh, in a specific project that you're trying to put together like I am. I'm trying to do this outdoor desert stuff. I need that for just that period of time and then I'll just kind of spend my money to have it for that period of time and then uh, I don't have to worry about maintaining it or watching it depreciate over the next uh, 10 months that I don't use it, you know? That's uh, that's the truth of it. So I appreciate you guys checking out this uh, episode of the podcast. It's fun talking with you this week and uh, probably be uh, doing a little bit more coastal hill stuff, some forest stuff. I'm kind of trying to stay out of the real deep freeze stuff that I might be getting up in the, the Cascade Mountains or, or out in the Eastern Oregon stuff for the month of February. But I'll be back at it soon and uh, hopefully I'll be uh, be up over into the the cool sagebrush sections of Eastern Oregon for winter time, man, it's kind of brutal out there in the winter time though, but it's cool over here on the, the Oregon coast and stuff kind of going up and down 
uh, the Highway 101 to kind of check out some some stuff over here. It's been been pretty fun checking out some foresty creeks. It's all pretty good, pretty easy, pretty mild uh, climate stuff here in in, uh, in February. But until next time, I uh, have been Billy Newman, and you've been listening to the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I appreciate it. Check out BillyNewmanPhoto.com for more. Thanks a lot. Bye.